We thank you for your presence here, Father. We thank you, Lord, that as Pastor Kurt mentioned this morning, and I'm so grateful that he did, that we can have confidence and boldness to come to you today as a father. You are the God of all creation. You are a righteous and holy God. And yes, you are a consuming fire, and it's a fearful thing to fall into your hands. But we don't fall into your hands. We fall into Christ. We've come into Christ, and by coming to Christ, Father, we can come to you as sons and daughters of the living God, not because of our goodness, not because of anything we've done, but because of his love and faithfulness to you and his love for us. And so we come with full confidence and assurance this morning, Father, that you hear us and that your heart is open to us, that your ears are open to us and your hands are extended to us and your spirit is moving in us and towards us today. And we, Father, we thank you for your word and we pray today that the spirit of God may begin to minister to us and take the word of God and begin to breathe into our hearts the breath of life, that our hearts may be touched and changed by your heart this morning, Father. May we see your heart and may it change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we're going to continue with the message on preaching the gospel, but to do that, we're going to begin to change focus just a little bit. And I just have a little video I want to show that I think will open us up to what we're going to talk about this morning. So would you run this video, please? It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? My neighbor? I'm glad we're together again. <laughs> I had trouble getting that song out of my head all weekend. <laughs> I wanted to come out and take my suit coat off and put on a sweater and sit down and put comfortable shoes on, but I thought it'd be more effective if I just showed you that cute little clip. And I only showed it to you because what we're going to begin to talk about today is who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? And it was interesting because how God orchestrates things because I wasn't even planning on it. And then I realized that this was the next in the series that I had seen to do. And it's the Sunday we're going to go out to our neighbors and begin to be neighborly with our neighbors. It's an interesting show because so many people remember that show. And it's interesting when I shared that I was going to show that clip, I shared it with some people that are a much younger generation and they recognized it immediately. And although, you know, it's kind of corny in some people's eyes, and there's something simplistic about it, but there was a sincerity and a, 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 and a genuineness about Fred Rogers, who was an ordained minister, by the way. And, and, and it was simple, but it reached children with a very basic message of, we live in a neighborhood, 
And that, story, that episode is actually about the family. And, and God has put us here for a purpose, and that's what we've been talking about this entire year, is why are we here? What's our purpose? And our purpose, we've seen, is to go forth into all the world and preach the gospel. We've looked at those scriptures, and we've looked at what it means to go. We've looked at what the gospel is, and now we're looking at what it means to preach it. And we've saw, we saw that, that, that preaching it means more than just speaking the word, but it also, we've been looking over the last few weeks, it's living it. Jesus said we were in Acts chapter 1, the way we're to do that is to go and be witnesses of him. And not, the word witness is not a verb, it's something we go do, it is to be instead something that we are. And then we saw that Jesus was a perfect witness of his Father, because Jesus said, if you've seen me, not just if you've listened to what I've said, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to be a witness of someone means if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen, the, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So to see me must tell you something about what the Father's like. And the real question in our life is, what are we a witness of? Because we're a witness of someone and of something. So the question we're to ask ourselves, and then we saw that Jesus said, but in order to do this, you must be filled with the same spirit that filled me with, the same presence of God. See, it's not me working up and learning how to imitate God. Just as Jesus didn't imitate his Father, the Father in him did the works. And so it has to be Jesus in us loving people. Jesus, and we looked in, in Ephesians chapter 3, and we saw that's exactly what Paul's prayer was for the f- church at Ephesus, that God would strengthen them by His Spirit in their inner man so that Christ may be able to live in them, not just in them, but through them, so that they might come to know together with everybody else what is the incredible extent of how far Christ's love would go. And that's somewhat of what we're going to look at this morning. The height and depth and length and breadth. That means to what extent would he go? How far would he go because of his love? How wide is God's love? How deep is God's love? How high is God's love? And then he said that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. God wants to fill his people with himself so that we don't have to go out and try to be something, do something. We just are something and what we are is him living in us and through us. And so Jesus said, you must be filled with my spirit in order to do that. So what is it then he said to do? Then you're supposed to go into Judea, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the uttermost parts of the earth. And so our, our, our Jerusalem is this area around us as a church. Your Jerusalem is where you live, where you work, your family, who you have immediate contact with. And we're to be living examples of him, not imitators of him, but allow him to live through us. And then we looked at that example of how Jesus uh, uh, did this with his own disciples. We saw in Matthew chapter 10, and Luke's version is in chapter 9, where he takes his disciples and he's moved with compassion over the lost that are around him. And then he says, pray the Lord of the harvest that you send out laborers into the field, because the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we saw we are those laborers that, we, that he, the Spirit of God has been praying for in this day and age. And then he did something about it. He set aside ten, 12 men and he commissioned them and said, go do what I've done. You've watched me do this. Now you go do the same thing. You declare to them. You teach them. You preach to them and declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. And then you just demonstrate that to them. You demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like, that God cares by reaching out and touching their needs, by healing the sick, by raising the dead, by casting out demons, by basically ministering to where people are. They're hurting because we live in a world that's controlled by the devil. 
All you got to do is read the newspaper and you can tell that or look on the turn on TV. The Word tells us, the Word of God tells us that Satan is right now the God of this world and he is working his evil. He is destroying families. He's trying to destroy nations. He's trying to destroy your life and my life. The good news is that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And the song we sang this morning about deliverance, God, Jesus came to deliver people. In fact, it says in 1 John, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that He might destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus said, I am now seated at the right hand of my Father until my enemies made my footstool. Well, the church's responsibility is to bring His enemy down as His footstool. He's defeated Him, but we have the cleaning up operation. And so the church is to go out into the world and where there's heart, Satan has brought devastation to people's lives, we're to bring that healing in that, that, but it's not our healing, it's his healing working through us and through that we have an opportunity to preach the fullness of the gospel. And so we saw that and then we saw that he sent the 12 out and they came back and gave a report and then in Luke chapter 10 we saw that he sent 70 more out. So it wasn't just the apostles that we call the apostles of the Lamb, but he took the other large group that followed him of 70 and he gave them the same commission and he sent them out and we saw that they came back and they reported. They were so excited because they watched. It works! It works! His word worked. By the way, his word does work. He, it works. He says, even, even the demons were subject to us in his name. And Jesus says, just calm down. That's good. But don't get so excited by the authority of ever the devil. Be more excited that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then he pulls aside and he says, Father, I just worship you because you've shown these things not to the wise and to the, to the theologians in the, in, the, in the institutions, but you've revealed these to the simple and the pure of heart. And then he said some things. He, he, he now pronounced some, some, cha- some, to some challenges on some cities, some woes. And then we go to Luke chapter 10. And let's pick up in verse 25, Luke chapter 10. And this is all part of this same process of preaching the gospel. Because what he's told them to do is go and announce that the kingdom of God is here. It's not just in heaven, it's here now. And then he didn't say just announce it, he said show it, reveal it by what you do, by bringing that kingdom into people's lives. And that kingdom is God cares, God loves, God heals, God delivers, God restores. God cares about our, our, the, the everyday aspects of our life. One of the, one of the, one of the uh, heresies that's come into the church for years and years and years is because God is only, con- God is only concerned about our spiritual wel- wel- welfare. Because in heaven, that's all that matters. In God's heart, that's all that matters. Well, certainly if that's all God could choose, He would choose our spiritual welfare over everything else. But God cares about every aspect of your life. God cares about... He even numbered the hairs on your head. So He must care about the hairs on your head. Some of us, he waited too, you know, we waited too late to go to Him about it. But <laughs> Luke chapter 10. Did I give you enough time to turn there? All right, this is all part of this same process, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Won't you be my neighbor? Verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what should, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? I'm going to read down through this, and then I'm going to go back through it. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. 
But he, that's the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, tells him this story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest comes down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came from where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he departed and took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend when I come again, I will repay you. And my question then is, so which one of these three do you think was his neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's go back to verse 25. A certain lawyer. Now Jesus isn't just picking on lawyers although he wouldn't be the first. But I believe the re- a lawyer in that day was not simply a lawyer as you would think of a lawyer today, but it's someone who specialized in understanding and interpreting the law. And what lawyers are trained to do, and I speak as I, as I am one, I was one, and we've got two sitting on the front row, another one, several lawyers in the congregation here. Our training is to take things apart mentally, is to find out what's wrong with something. If it's a contract, to find out where the loopholes are in the contract. If it's, if it's a statute, to read it so precisely and so distinctly that we know exactly where every little, every little crevice is, every real issue is, so that if we need to, we can find out what applies to our client or how, and not just loopholes, because that's, that, that's kind of has this negative connotation to it, but that we can find out, argue our case by saying this word doesn't really apply in this situation. So lawyers are trained to take words and, and to refine their meaning, and a lot of my ability to teach, a lot of the, the, the training that I've had to do what I do comes out of my training as a lawyer, because I basically present a case every week. I break it down, take it apart, present a case. And the reason I'm able to see some of the things in the Word is because I don't just settle for what it says on the surface. I'll dig down into it and think, what does that really mean? Because that's my training, that's my instinct. So I say that because this man that Jesus is having this conversation with, that's his mindset. His mindset is to listen to something and to, and to take it apart, not in a negative way necessarily, but to analyze it and to dissect it. But what does it really mean? That's his training. Now, you can take your training and use it for good, or you can take your training and use it for bad, depending on what's in your heart. And we're going to look at what's in this man's heart, because that's really what Jesus is speaking to. So he comes to Jesus, and he says to him, lawyer stood up and said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Go to verse 26. And he said to him, what's written in the law? So, and what's the reading of it? What's your reading of it? So Jesus isn't going to just going to tell him what he thinks. Jesus' answer to what is required for eternal life is to go to the Word. And that has to be our answer today. It can't be what I think, what you think. It can't be what some denomination says. It has to be what God says in His Word. And that's what Jesus goes back. And He says, what do you, how do you read this? Verse 27. And He answered and said to him, He quotes the Old Testament. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That is what the law, that is the summation of all that the law says to do. 
all the Ten Commandments, all the other things, if you, if you, if you just do these two simple things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself, that's all God requires of us. It's really simple. Now, the living of that out is where the challenge is. And so, Jesus says, go to verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. I'm sure the, the lawyer just had a big smile on his face. You have answered correctly. And then Jesus adds this. Do this, and you will live. Now, what the lawyer was interested in doing, as we lawyers tend to do, is to debate. I See, before I was ever a lawyer, I loved to debate. I debated him. I actually argued. It was more arguing. But I would, I would debate something at the drop of a hat. I would take a position and argue it. And it was just, it was, I, I enjoyed doing that. And I've been delivered, I th- hopefully, from that, I won't look over there. Hopefully, I've been delivered pretty much of that. <clears throat> so that instead of just arguing, I hopefully have a, a good purpose to what I'm doing. But it's easy. Lawyers love to debate things and to discuss things. And it's not them alone. A lot of us do. It's called Facebook. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion out there among Christians about what this means and what that means and what my opinion of this and what my opinion of that. Well, I've got a pet peeve on some of that, but I won't go off on there this morning. But notice what Jesus said. You've answered rightly, but now he gets to the point. Do this, and you will live. Now it begins to confront the lawyer. It begins to confront this man because he wasn't interested in what he had to do. He was interested in making himself justified. Because look at verse 29. But wanting to justify himself. See, this is a little insight into his motive. Here again, we go back to his training was to dissect things. His training was to analyze things and have an understanding of what does it really mean. And that's a wonderful thing to do depending on your motive for doing it. This man's motive was not to analyze it and to understand it and to dissect it so that he could live it out more fully. It was not to analyze it and dissect it and understand it so he could explain explain it more carefully to other people. He wanted to do it to justify himself. Now to justify means to make myself look right. And actually what the word actually means in the Greek is to make yourself appear correct. So what he wanted to do, what's in his heart, is to make himself look righteous in, God, in Jesus' eyes and in the people's eyes. So that's his motive. That's what's in his heart. So when he asks this question, he's not trying to get an answer so that he can more carefully carry out the commandment. He's not looking for a greater understanding so he knows how to carry out the commandment. What he's looking for is a way to justify what he's doing. And this is important to understand. I really saw this this morning as, as I was meditating on this. G, the lawyer is not seeking. Remember what Jesus has just done. He's just sent the 70 out, the 12 and then the 70 out, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. The good news, that God is here, His kingdom is here, God cares about you, God loves you, not just your eternal soul, but He loves you where you are right now, and He wants to deliver you and exercise His love and compassion and a delivering power into your life right now. And the 12 went out and came back and reported that it worked, the 70 went out and came back and reported it worked, and now this lawyer comes to him, and he's disturbed by this a little bit, and he's asking, you know, what do I have, what do, I have to do? 
And Jesus lays out the standard, and this lawyer now, in response to this, seeking to justify himself, is not concerned with finding out what the truth is. He's just heard the truth. He's just heard the truth. He's just heard what's required to be right in God's eyes is that really simple standard. This is what it is. And this is important. I want to park here for a moment because our hearts determine how we read the Scriptures. That's what Matthew 13 is all about, the parable of the sower. Same words sown in the heart, same seed, but the difference in the harvest that's produced, and some of them didn't produce any harvest, is what, the, what was in the heart, what the heart was looking for. There's a reason why the Word gives us this insight into heart, His heart, why He asked the question, what He's really looking for. Sometimes people come and ask me questions, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to discern, why are you asking that question? What are you really looking for? Sometimes people come into counseling, and they'll tell you the whole disaster that's going on in their life, and they're not looking to get out of it. They're looking for comfort while they're in it. And if they're looking for comfort while they're in it and not, are not interested in getting out of it, then our counsel is not going to help them because our counsel is designed to help you get out of it. And the way out of it is to take God's Word and do what God's Word says. And when Jesus tells him that it's not just understanding that commandment, but it's doing it, now the man is a problem. As long as we're talking about what the Word says, as long as we're talking about what the requirement is, as long as we're talking about the golden rule and the great commandment, as long every, as we can get along fine, we can talk about it, we can debate what it means, and oh, isn't that wonderful? I heard so-and-so on TV talking about the same thing. I had a CD I plugged in the other day, said that God's speaking the same thing to me. Wonderful. But when it comes down to deciding to do it, that's where we find out where our heart really is. And what this man was not seeking to change, he was not seeking to adjust his heart to be like God's heart. He was not seeking to obey the commandment from his heart. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make what he was doing look acceptable in everybody else's sight. That's what that means when he said wanting to justify himself. And how does he justify himself? How does he do this to, to take the law, read it, say, I agree with it, praise God, amen, hallelujah, Jesus, that's exactly right. And then Jesus, okay, now go do it. Well, Lord, what, who is my neighbor? His motive in asking that question was not to find out who to go and minister to. His motive in asking that question was to establish how little do I have to do to be accepted. What does it take to get by and appear righteous? What does it take to get by Jesus and appear good on the outside? And, and so I've got to define, Lord, well then who really is my neighbor? He was concerned about how he appeared not just to others, but to Jesus. He was not concerned with being, being like God. He was, a, he was concerned with being, looking right. Remember, witnessing is being, not doing. In the process, you'll do. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But witnessing is to be something. 
is to allow Christ to dwell in you and be a witness of his Father through you, which means there have to be changes that take place in us so that he can live in us and there's not this battle going on. Jesus saying, I want to do this, and you say, I don't. And so what the lawyer wanted to do was to be comfortable. He wanted to justify where he was by redefining what neighbor is. And we live in a world where that's rampant. It's called spinning things. Even to the point that we had a president a number of years ago that dealt with something that was going on in the Oval Office by saying, well, it depends on what is means. Same thing. Well, who's my neighbor? He agreed with what the law required, but the issue came out when Jesus told him to act on it. His heart was to do the least he had to do in order to get by. His heart was not the same as God the Father. God has not, God's heart, remember we're talking about being a witness of Him. God's heart is not how little do I have to do so that I appear good. Because He's not concerned with appearing good to anybody. Jesus was not concerned with how He appeared to people, so His attitude of His heart was now, not well, how, how do I appear to people? He offended almost everybody. He was not politically correct, but He was kingdom correct. Jesus was not concerned, in fact there's a scripture, I think it's in John, where it says there were a number of the Pharisees that believed in him, but they wouldn't confess him publicly because they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue because they cared more what man thought of them than what God thought of them. And that's a good question to ask our heart. And Jesus wasn't concerned with how, how little do I have to do so that I look good? How little do I have to do so that God, I'm accepted in God's eyes? And the point here is that's not what God's heart is like. That's what our fallen nature is like. Our fallen nature, our flesh, we want to look good, especially because we're now Christians. We want to look good. We want to act right. We want God to be pleased with us. We want to be our friends in church and our neighbors and our family to look at it and say, boy, you know, you're a good Christian. We want to think good of ourselves. I'm a pretty good Christian. Not proud, but I'm just, you know, I'm doing okay. And we're concerned with that, but we're more concerned often with that than are we representing God's heart. Does God's heart in me have free reign? Because we're going to see a conflict here and Jesus is going to give a story that brings this out very clearly. But I want you to see what the issue is. The reason they ask who is my neighbor is he's trying to define the boundaries of his responsibility. What is the limit? Because if we can get into a debate about who my neighbor is, I can define what the limits of my responsibility is. And I can tell you where you want that to be because I know where I want it to be in me. Understand this, I'm preaching to me this morning as much as I'm preaching to you. The boundary of what I define my neighbor is my comfort zone. Any neighbor that's included in my comfort zone is my neighbor. But if God were to ask me to go outside my comfort zone, cross that boundary, and go share His love with somebody that's outside my comfort zone, well, I'd rather that not be my neighbor. When I was first saved, I was practicing law in that large firm in Boston. 
And I was a deacon in the church that we were in, and we were very faithful in our church and, and serving in our church. And, uh, uh, and, and, just, you know, and I got saved, I fell in love with the Lord. And the Lord began to deal with me, and I've forgot, forgotten how I found out about this. But I remember one Sunday morning, God began to deal with me. He said, I want you after church this afternoon, I want you to go down, there was a street mission in Boston called Kingston House. And I want you to go down there because they have a Sunday afternoon service. And I don't remember how, I found that out. It wasn't God, God just told me that. He said, I want you to go down there and I want you to serve food to the homeless. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) I've worked hard all week. I've just gone and served in my church for a whole hour. That's how long our service lasted, if it lasted that long. I've got my wife, we've got to have supper, we've got two kids at the time. Not only that, I mean, I've got to get dressed up again. I work in Boston. Do you understand I go there every day except Saturday and Sunday? This, God, this is my day off. These are the kind of thoughts that went through my head. And it just wouldn't go away. It, became, it was an issue of obedience. So I got dressed up again. I was trying to explain it. My wife had no idea what I was doing. She thought I was crazy. <laughs> and I get in my car and drive down scared. Because I'm not used to dealing with homeless people. I was not raised around that. I was raised in a reasonably, not wealthy, but a reasonably affluent family. And that was not something I was comfortable with. I just knew that in my heart I was supposed to do that. It was an act of obedience. And I went down there and I swallowed every bit of pride. Every bit of, oh, I went in there shaking. But I did it. And I got so blessed by the people that I met there that I started going two lunch hours a week down there to serve until I left the practice in Boston. Wonderful people. The very first sermon I ever preached was there. I walked in one afternoon from lunch, walk in there, walk in the door, sit down, because they had to sit through a service, about 15, 20-minute service. And the director said, John, come here, you're preaching today. Between the back and the front, I had to come up with a sermon to preach to people that really didn't want to hear it. God was preparing me for you. No, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) It was preparing me for anything because they didn't want to hear it. They just wanted to get this guy to shut up so I can go downstairs and get something to eat. (laughs) We won't go there (laughs) because I've done that too. But I did it is the point. I got outside of my comfort zone and it broke something in me. And then that allowed the love of God and things in me to begin to come forth. Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus answers this question by an interesting story. Verse 30. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now we're going to see that there's three men that come along And they're important to understand who they are because they represent us in some capacity. Verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. Now understand what a priest is. A priest is a man in in those days called by God. If you go into Hebrews chapter 5, you see the qualifications for a priest. They have to be a man because they have to represent man to God. And they have to be called or chosen by God. And they're chosen and called by God to represent God to the people and the people to God, to stand in for God to the people. To represent, remember, what we're talking about is being 
a witness of Him. Representing Him to people. If you've seen me, you've seen Him. And the priest's call by God is to represent God to the people. And the first man Jesus chooses as an example is someone that was called by God to represent what God's like to the people. And what did he do? When he saw him, he passed to the other side. He, what is he saying? He says, that's not my responsibility. That's not my responsibility. I have to go, I have to go prepare the sacrifice at the temple. I have to go perform my responsibilities at the temple. I have to go do my job. I have to go do what I'm supposed to do. That's not my job. That's got to be somebody else's job. And these priests were always concerned with how they looked to the people. They were concerned with their position. In fact, the only people... Jesus got frustrated with His own disciples. But the only people He really got mad at... He didn't even get mad at Judas. Ooh, that's an interesting thought. The only people he got mad at were the religious hypocrites. And he got mad at them. In Matthew 25, he calls them all kinds of names. Because they were keeping the people from knowing God. They were keeping the people from knowing what God is like. They were keeping the people from knowing that God cares about justice. God cares about, 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 God cares about mercy. God cares about people's needs. God cares about suffering. God cares about those things. And the priests were keeping the people from seeing that because they were representing a different image of God to them. It's a big responsibility to represent God to the people, but that is our responsibility. Priest, what did he do? When he saw, because he saw, remember Jesus saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion and he prayed and then he did something. They saw people hurting. They saw this man hurting. They saw him. It wasn't like they didn't see him. They saw him, but he didn't touch their heart. His knee didn't touch their heart because they weren't concerned with what was concerning to God. They were only concerned with themselves. So he crossed by to the other side. Not my responsibility. Easy to avoid. This is a challenging message. Because I'm sure all of us, almost every day, walk by people that we just kind of aren't sensitive to because we're so busy taking care of the things that we think need to be taken care of because they're important to us. And they may be legitimate and important things. But are we willing to allow God in us to disrupt our schedule? Are we willing? In fact, Matthew chapter 9 is a story of nothing but a series of interruptions in Jesus' day. None of those were planned. And yet miracle after miracle took place. Maybe we don't see more miracles because we're not open and available to God doing things in us and through us because we're so focused on what we need to get done and what's I mean, after all it's the holiday season there's a lot that has to be done we got to get all those things done whether we present his joy and love or not and and we wonder why the world's lost track of what christmas is all about maybe the church has lost track of what christmas is all about well let's move on cuz the next one this is getting too uncomfortable verse 32 likewise or in the same way a levite when he pe- arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by to the other side. Now, a Levite was the tribe of which the priests were chosen. 
So the priests were chosen out of the tribe of Levi, but the Levi was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and this was the, tri- the tribe that in the Old Testament God had assigned, they had assigned the operation of His worship to them. The operation, the oversight, the maintenance of, the transportation of, and the operation of the tabernacle and the worship was to the, was to the Levites. The priests actually did the work, but the Levites were responsible for it. So, and in fact, in the Old Testament, God says that, that Levi, the Levites are like my own firstborn. They're like my own child because they don't even have a place. The, all, all, the other 11 tribes were assigned, were assigned a place to, to, as their home. And he says, the Levites belong to me. So they had a very special place in God's heart. And yet this Levite who belongs to the tribe that is, and is responsible... For, for worship and responsible for the things of God, this Levite who sees this man hurting does the same thing that the priest did. He saw the same need and he did not see it as his responsibility because he didn't want to see it as his responsibility. Let me make this statement. What we're open to see is determined by what our heart's willing to do. What we're open to see is determined by what our heart is willing to do. It's all about the heart. It's an issue of the heart. Because what God wants to witness through us is His heart. It's the goodness of God, Romans chapter 1 says, or chapter 2 says, that calls people to repentance. It's the goodness of God, the love of God. We'll look at that at the end. So here's the Levite. Does, sees the same thing that the priest sees. And he doesn't see the need. Because he's not open to the need. Because just like the lawyer, all he's concerned with is how people see him. Not whether God's witnessed in him and through him. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, I want to stop there because I want to explain to you, I've mentioned this before, but in order to get the fullness, remember this is, this is not a real story that really happened. This is a parable, a simple parable that Jesus is using to answer the lawyer's question. That Jesus is using to confront the attitude that's in his heart. That Jesus is using to respond from God's heart to what the lawyer was saying and the lawyer's doing. So he chose intentionally Two religious people who ought to have God's heart if anybody was going to have God's heart. A man that was called by God to represent God to the people and a man from the tribe that was responsible for the worship of God among the people. And the third one he uses that is a Samaritan. Now if you ever look at a map of Israel in the times of Palestine, Jesus' times, what you'll find is that there's three basic areas. There's, there's where Jerusalem is which is Judea. Then there's northern part is Galilee, which is where a lot of Jesus' ministry was. But in between Galilee and Judea, where Jerusalem was, you had this area called Samaria. And a Samaritan was from Samaria. Now, we're going to go back, we'll, we'll rewind a, number, a couple hundred, more than a couple hundred years, to a time when Israel was one nation, was two nations, right after Solomon died, and, 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 and it was divided into two nations. Twelve, ten of the twelve tribes banded together under one king in the north. And two of the other tribes, Judah and Benjamin, 
gathered around Solomon's son to the south. And they had very different history that came forth. And then what happened is the northern tribes, ten tribes, were eventually carried away by the Assyrians and dispersed. Those are called the lost tribes of Israel. But the southern two tribes, about 150 years later, were taken into captivity by a different nation, a succeeding nation, called Babylon. And what the Babylonians did is they will take, in order to break the power of the nation they just overcome, they would separate out. They would take some of them back to their homeland and leave some of them there, and then they would, they would leave some of their own people there. So after the three waves going into Babylon of the, of, the, of the Jews, they left some of their people there and then they moved some other people in to intermarry with them. So in the course of the 70 or 80 years while they're there, what happens is they, they broke all their traditions, all their barriers broke down and so the remaining Jews intermarried with the, 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 the pagans that had came in and they formed basically in the eyes of Israel at this time a half-breed. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile. And the Jews hated the Gentiles because they had no covenant with God. But they hated the Samaritans even more so because they saw them as people that had compromised the, 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 the purity of the, of the covenant that they had with God. So we look at it, and we can look at it in this term, that this is a racial term. So to say he's a Samaritan is not just saying where he's from, He's picking the most hated person that this lawyer could, abuse, could use as an, or Jesus could use as an example. So he's used a priest, a man called by God to represent God, who turned and went to the other side. He was, he was blind to that. He did not see this man's need as his responsibility. The Levite, a man in charge, a, a, a man with pure blood, pure heritage, in charge of worship, he turned a blind eye and a blind heart and went to the other side. So Jesus is going to choose a Samaritan, not a priest, not a man trained or educated, not a man called by God, a, 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 a somebody that by these Jews, this lawyer, would have been looked down on and hated. He would never talk to. Remember Jesus in John chapter 4 at the well? And the Samaritan woman comes there. And she's amazed that he's talking to her. He says, how come your t- Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? They don't talk to us because we're dogs. We're considered as dogs, not a cute pet that you'd have in your house, but the kind of mongrel that walks the streets and eats garbage. That's what Jesus is choosing here on purpose. But a certain Samaritan, and we're talking about representing God, a witness of God. So it's not, it's not what you're born into. It's not your education and your training. Listen carefully. It's not even your calling. It's your heart. But when the Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this injured man was, and when he saw him, he saw with his eyes the exact same thing that the priest saw. He saw with his eyes the exact same thing that the Levite saw. He saw the exact same thing, but he responded differently because his heart was in a different place. And this has got to be penetrating to that lawyer. And when he saw him, he had compassion. When Jesus saw the lost people, he had compassion compassion. When he healed, so often it says he was moved by compassion. 
when he fed the people after three days being out in the wilderness with no food, he was moved by compassion. For God so moved with compassion that he sent his only begotten son. Compassion is God's heart. Caring is God's heart. Not sympathy. Sympathy is different than compassion. Sympathy is when you feel sorry for someone. You can feel sorry for someone and not be moved. In fact, you can feel sorry for someone and look down your nose at them. Compassion, if you break that word down into its two components, it literally means to feel along with. So compassion is when you allow yourself to feel what someone else is going through. And when you feel what somebody else is going through, if you're at all alive, it moves you. And you have a choice of whether you're going to act on what you felt. This man was touched with the feelings of this injured man's infirmity. So what did he do? Remember Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do it and you'll live. We're going to see what this man did. The, the Levite and the, and, the, and, the, and the priest saw it. They weren't moved with compassion and what they did was they, they learned, turned the other way. They turned the other cheek all right. <laughs> they turned their eyes away. Let's see what this man did. Verse 34. So he went to him. We're talking about go. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which you've got to understand was the medicinal, uh, the medicinal uh, 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 first aid kit. So he pulls out his first aid kit from his donkey, and he binds his wounds. He puts on whatever the whatever this was medicine for the day. He treated his wounds right there. And then what did he do? He set him on his animal. So he took him in his car, dirty and bleeding and injured. Put him in his car, and he drove him to the inn and took care of him. So when he saw him, he moved towards him, not away from him. When God sees you and what you're going through, he moves towards you, not away from you. The priest and the Levite, when they saw him, they moved away from him, not towards him. He treated his wounds using his own materials to do that. So it cost him some of his materials. It cost him time. Because we're going to see in the next verse or so, he already had a schedule. He was on an agenda. He had to get someplace, but he was willing to be interrupted in his schedule, in his agenda for something that was not in his daytimer, it was not in his PDA, it was not on his you know, Facebook schedule, it was not something planned, but this man's need was more important to him than his own concerns. So he takes him to the inn, out of his way, most likely, and took care of him, and on the next day, so he spends the night with him, on the next day, verse 35, he departs and he took out two denarii and gave them to his innkeeper and said to him, 
Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. He basically, as he's getting ready to leave, he's looking at, I've got to go on and take care of the, my business. But I, 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 my, my responsibility is not over just because I bandaged his wounds. My response, I didn't, notice he just says, go and pray for him. Oh, oh my, oh, my friend. Be healed in Jesus' name. Okay, now I wash my hands of that and I can go about and do what I'm going to do. No, he was moved with compassion. He couldn't settle for that. Whatever it is he could do is what... He wasn't looking for how little do I have to do. He wasn't even conscious of what it was costing him. All he could see is this man's need and whatever he could do to meet that man's need. Gets up the next morning and realizes the man still needs to be taken care of. So in our day's parlance, he reaches in his wallet, takes his credit card and hands it to him. He says, I've got to go about my appointments. He says, but here's my credit card. Whatever is needed, as long as it's needed, here's my, he left him money. When that's up, use my credit card until he's taken care of and he's well enough to go. And when I come back, I'll pay that bill. You do pay your bill, don't you? Okay. I'm going to pay that bill. and I will repay you. Verse 36, and Jesus now brings it back. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? He said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Notice the lawyer starts by trying to define a term. What is, what is, what, what is, what really is my neighbor? Because the more you can have a discussion with somebody, you don't have to do something. And you know, sometimes we do this with God. God shows us something to do, and we get into a discussion with Him about it. Well, Lord, when should I do this? How long do I have to do this? What do you really mean? Who does it really apply to? And while we're doing that, while we're discussing this, we don't have to do anything. Jesus said to him, who do you think now? Jesus defined the neighbor not by a definition out of a dictionary, but by a, by a heart response. It's the one who showed mercy upon him who was his neighbor. Now, the purpose of this message is not to condemn us because I'd have to stand condemned along with many of the rest of us. Some of you are very generous in your giving of yourself and of your time. But all of us struggle to some degree in what are the boundaries, what are the limits, God, of what do I have to give? And the point here is not what is God trying to take from us? How much of my time do I have to give up? How much is required of this? The point is this. What we're learning is that we're called to go and be a witness of Christ. We're called to live our life as a witness of Him so that if somebody's seen me, they've seen Jesus. So this is a work that He has to do in us by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we're going to go out and try to imitate Him, and that's not what He did. And as we've said before, you'll run out eventually because you're doing that in your own flesh and in your own determination. 
this is a matter of what are we willing to allow Him to do in us. What are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do in us? This is why Paul prayed, Father, strengthen them in their inner man with power so that Christ can dwell in them. I mean, He has to do a work in us so that Christ can actually come and live in us and perform. I don't mean being saved. I mean live His life in us through it. So we have to be strengthened. The Spirit of God has to do a work in us, in our hearts, so that Jesus can come and live through us to the extent that He wants to live through us. So this is a work He has to do, but it always begins by acknowledging I'm not where I think I am. I think I'm doing pretty well because I'm a giver. I do this and I do this until the Spirit of God touches. Yeah, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to go downtown this afternoon. I'm not saying he's saying this to you, but he did to me. and says, no, I want you to go down to Kingston House and I want you to serve food to the homeless. <gasps> Lord, no, but all these things, but they're, they're not my neighbor. We're looking at this in terms of, all right, if this is a witness of God, what did God do? What did God do? Notice being a neighbor has nothing to do with your proximity, how close somebody is to you. It has to do with the degree of caring that we're willing to allow God to care through us. Jesus is using this story to show what His Father's like. God loved us so much. Put up John 1.14. You should have it back there. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1. Don't stay there. John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this is all things came into being by Him and through Him. So in the beginning, when the, all of this was created, there was God the Father, and there was God the Son, the Word, the full expression of Him. And what this verse says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What this verse says is, because God so loved us, He crossed the street. But He crossed a big street. He crossed the street from heaven to a teenager's womb to be born in the lowest of places, in a stall in Bethlehem as a baby. For God so loved us, John 3.16 says, that He gave. He was motivated by His love for us, not His obligation, because He was obligated to do nothing. God was not obligated to send Christ to the earth. What drove Him was His compassion, because He could see how lost we were going to be far more than you or I have ever seen. He knows what hell feels like. He can smell the fumes from it. He can see it. And He knew we were destined by our own rebellion to spend eternity there. And He couldn't stand that. He couldn't stand that. So He crossed the street from heaven to earth to bandage your wounds and my wounds and to pay whatever the cost is the credit card he handed was his own son's life. Whatever debt, oh, whatever debt they run up. Now my credit cards have a credit limit on it. His has none. Whatever, because what what, the blood of Jesus guarantees that credit card. 
whatever, whatever, whatever debt they run up, whatever debt they run up, this credit card pays that debt for them. It's a red credit card, red in the blood of Jesus. And I will pay that debt. Because he's moved by compassion. He's moved by compassion. So what we're talking about is just representing God's heart and God's compassion to people that don't know it. And what we're willing to do. Romans 5. Put that up there if you would. Verse 8. For God demonstrated his own love towards us. He didn't just sit in heaven and look down and say, I love those people. I love them so much. My heart breaks for what they're going through down there. They're just so full of pride and selfishness. They're sending themselves to hell and their lives are broken up and the devil's tearing them. Oh, my, just, oh, it's so hard to look at. I don't think I can look at this anymore. No, he had to do something. Love acts. Love acts. When we're truly moved with compassion, we can't sit still. God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, before we were ever in His family, before we were ever loved God, before we could ever worship God, and many of us, were, we knew we were sinners. I mean, we were running from God so fast because we were afraid of Him. We were full, full of ourselves, and we were caught in the grips of the devil. And some of us were, some of you were down and outers. I was a down and up and inner. And just as lost. More dangerous is you don't know you're lost. Because you're looking at your circumstances, you can't tell it. But I was just as lost, just as de- empty inside, just as full of pride and selfishness and self-centeredness. While we were in that state, God demonstrated His love for you and me. He crossed the street and did whatever was necessary. Even when it cost Him his own son's life. Even when he had to, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says, and this is hard for our minds to grasp, it pleased him to bruise his son. It wasn't because he was glad to see his son beaten by those whips. It was because he was override. that horror was overridden by His compassion for our state and how lost we were. So when we look at the Samaritan and we look at the lawyer and we look at the priest and the Levite and we see that what the Samaritan was willing to do, he didn't count the cost. He wasn't concerned for the cost. He was so moved by the hurt of that man that whatever it cost, he was willing to pay. That's what the Father's heart is like. And that's what Jesus wants to be able to form in us. So the question we need to end with is this. And just within your own heart, what limits do I place on God's giving His love through me? Do I reserve the right to say no? That's too much. Undoubtedly, we all do to some point. When we're faced with the love that God wants to give through us, how do we respond? Respond. And here's the point. You may be listening to this this morning as many of us are saying, oh my goodness, 
I realize that's where I am. I'm just like that Levite. I'm just like that priest. And here's the difference. When the lawyer saw that, he tried to justify himself by saying, it's okay to be like this because that's not really my neighbor. If we come to the place where we realize, oh my goodness, some things have to change in me, that I'm not being like the lawyer, instead I'm allowing, saying, God, I need you to come in my heart, just as Paul had to pray. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, I haven't arrived there yet. That's Paul. He hadn't arrived there yet. Certainly the disciples hadn't arrived yet, but they were willing for God to do this work in their lives. The lawyer tried to justify himself by debating what his limits of his responsibility were when confronted with what they really were. And the question is, is that what I'm going to do? Am I going to decide to say, I'm okay because that's not really my responsibility, I have a good excuse or whatever it is, or I'm going to say, oh Lord Jesus, please help me. Let's bow our heads. Father, your word, when your spirit breathes on it, will touch our heart. And sometimes that touch is sharp and it cuts through. And I'm so grateful that it does because it will cut through the hardness of my heart. It will cut through my excuses. It will cut through and touch the inner part of my heart, which is you, and awaken me. I pray, first of all, Father, that no one would leave here today feeling condemned. But we might all feel some conviction. And Lord, that none of us would leave here today using what our mind knows as excuses. But Lord, we would all be open to allow you to work in us what it is you want to do, to fill us with your compassion for people. Some of us here this morning are very compassionate in our own nature. But, Lord, that can be an excuse to not go beyond that. There are many of us, Lord, that are not compassionate at all in our own nature. We're still very selfish and self-centered. Lord, may your Spirit strengthen us. May your Spirit do a work in us that only He can do. We give you permission today. We ask you, we implore you to do a work in our hearts that only He can do so that we may be filled with all of your fullness and come to know together with one another and with all the saints, the wonderful breadth and length and height and depth, how far Christ is willing to go, how high He's willing to go, how wide He's willing to go, how deep He's willing to go, how low He's willing to go. Father, we thank You for this in Jesus' name.